1 John chapter 2, we're going to be covering verses 1 to 6 this morning. I titled this morning's message, The Test of Obedience. I uh, asked the question last week, what are the marks of a true Christian? Uh, you know, what is, a, what is a Christian? And I, I think that we would all agree that in the day that we're living in today, with all the various groups and cults and things that are out there that claim to be Christians, that it, that it actually is a, a question in a lot of people's minds. What is a Christian? And I think it's important for us to determine what a Christian is based upon the Word of God. Not based upon what we think it might be, but what does the Word of God say in regards to what a Christian is? What does it look like? And I think there's a lot of confusion even within maybe even some of the real church today. Because of the example maybe they are setting in front of this world. They don't see much difference between the, those that say they're Christians and go to church and those that, that don't even go. It's a poor testimony of our witness. You see, Jesus is in the business of changing lives. He makes people new. We're new creations in Christ when we give ourselves to Him. And I, and I think it's obvious to this world when they see a real Christian. I shared about the moral laxity that was taking place in John's day as he wrote this letter to the churches there that were in the area of Asia Minor. And the moral laxity that was even creeping into the church. Not many years later, after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it didn't take long where compromise began to to creep into the church. And maybe even the question of, yeah, what are, what is, how should a Christian live? What does that Christian look like? We know that as John was writing this letter, that Gnosticism, another heretical teaching of the day that was real prevalent during the time John wrote this, the Gnostics were the knowing ones. These were the people, the, the intellects. These were the ones that believed that they had a knowledge that was even superior to the Bible. And unless you have that knowledge, you could question whether or not you really know the living God. And they, they had their own religion and their own really set of doctrines that they followed. Those things became questions to many within the church when they were getting hammered with all these various views, the confusion that came with that. John needed to correct that. John is also going to clear up the misconceptions about what the very nature of a a Christian is in this letter. He's, He's one of these guys that really just says it the way it is. He put it out there and he made it very clear so that we would have no question in our mind, what is a Christian? John, in writing this letter, he approached it by really giving three tests, as I shared last week. He wanted to test those that would read this letter. 
And I, I, I think it's always good for us as Christians to uh, put ourselves under the test, but the test we put ourselves under is the Word of God. God's Word declares to us what a Christian is and what a Christian is not. But we also need to be careful. There's a caution when we read a letter like this. There's a caution because uh, we tend to be people sometimes that want to set ourselves up as a judge. We want to try and determine who's a believer and who's not. And it's important that we don't fall trapped to try and take the place of the righteous judge. The righteous judge is Jesus Christ Himself. And every human being is going to stand before that righteous judge someday. Yes, I know that the Word of God speaks about us being fruit inspectors. And that we're looking for the fruit in people's lives. And that is and does become evidence to us. But we should never put ourselves in the position of trying to determine if somebody says they're a believer that I'm determining that you're not. That belongs to God and God alone. As a matter of fact, the Scriptures tell us that for the righteous judge, there will be no one, there will be no creature, according to Hebrews 4.13, that will ever have anything hidden from his sight. Uh, You can't hide from God. There, There won't be anything hidden from him in His sight, and all things, we're told, are naked and open to the eyes of Him to whom we give account. He's the ultimate judge of every man's soul. John, he declared the message of the Gospel in the first three verses of chapter 1. We looked at that last week. He described the humanity of Jesus Christ. He also described the deity of Jesus Christ. Both of those are part of the Gospel. Jesus was a God-man. He was all God, yet He was all man. He was in the flesh also. Not in the flesh and sin, but in flesh. We could call the first three verses of chapter 1 the declaration of the Gospel. As a matter of fact, on those three verses right there, if you were to reread them, you'll see that our Christian Gospel, that it stands or falls upon these truths. They're non-negotiables. I can't say that Jesus is not God and be a Christian. I can't deny those facts that He's alive today, that He rose from the dead, that He's ascended up into heaven. That he's, I can't deny those things and be a Christian, though some try, and some want to still come under the title of a Christian. That is the declaration of what we believe. John declared four things. He says in verse 1, he says, we have heard the message, we believe the message, we understand the message concerning Jesus Christ. Remember, these were the apostles that were writing these words. This was John writing it, but these were the apostles' words. This is what they had seen. They were eyewitness account of the risen Lord. We've seen Him with our own eyes. We saw His death. We saw His resurrection and even His ascension back into heaven. 
the apostles were told that they actually beheld him. And that those words beheld him means that they, they looked upon the risen Lord. They looked upon him after he came back from the dead. And, they, and it says that they, they, they carefully contemplated what they were seeing. That's what it means to behold. We beheld him. We carefully contemplated what we were seeing. He told us that he was going to come back from the dead. And he has. We've touched him. We've handled him. We've seen. We've heard him speak. We ate with him. We walked with him. There was no doubt in these disciples' minds that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. That's the gospel. That's the good news that we take out to this world is that Jesus Christ is alive. He died on the cross for your sin also. You can live if you put your faith and trust in Him in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That life was manifested, we're told in verse 2, and we, see, we have seen it. We bear witness and we declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. Verse 3 says, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, plural, we declare to this world that you also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And then in verse 4, and these things we write to you that your joy may be full. One of the reasons why John wrote this letter was that we would have this fullness of joy in knowing Jesus Christ and knowing what He has done and knowing Him. Fullness of joy. This is the message which you heard from Him and declare to you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. What we see is this contrast. Light and darkness. And John does that through this letter. But we talked about last week the first part of this test of obedience. Remember, look at verse 6, how it starts off. If we say that we have fellowship with Him. Look at verse 8. If we say that we have no sin. Look at verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned. Do you see that? Three different times he says it the same way. If we say this, then if we claim to be this, if I call myself a Christian, I could put it that way, then these things should or should not be characteristic of you. If we say that we have fellowship with God, but we walk in darkness... John very clearly puts it this way. We lie. We lie. This first lie that we read about last week is a person who says that they have fellowship with God. They say that they're a Christian. They say that they have communion with the living God. But they're walking in darkness. That's opposite of the light. It's not consistent with what a Christian should be. In 1 Peter 2.9, Peter wrote this, 
But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Wow. Think of that. Think of your relationship with Jesus Christ. Think of your days before Christ and what you are now. He called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. That's that transformation that we all experience, those who truly know Jesus Christ. John says that the person who walks in darkness should rightfully question whether or not they're saved. That's based on the Word of God, not on my judgment of them, but based upon the Word of God. We are going to see as we go through this letter some other contrasts that John makes very clear. He spoke of last week, light and darkness. He's also going to talk about love and then hate. Two complete opposites. He's going to talk about truth and a lie. He's going to talk about death and life. And then also about God and the devil. These are all contrasts for the purpose of making a point and making it very clear. It'd be like that saying that we know, you know, oil and water don't mix. It's real hard to mix the two together. It's hard to mix these contrasts together. They're complete opposites of one another. That's the point in the way in which John is trying to bring out this point about What is a real Christian? Verse 8 says that if we say that we have no sin, it tells us here that we're deceiving ourselves. I don't know if you've ever done that, or if you thought that you could reach some state of perfection in your walk, or you can't even remember the last time you ever sinned. Uh, You know, and, and and you go down, and you deceive yourself. If a Christian comes to a place of believing that way, you need to go back to the Bible. Because the Bible says in this flesh, we are subject to sin in these earthly tabernacles. We will sin. We will fail. And it's actually a a, a kind of a self-righteous thing to think that I can obtain in this body. I can have victory through Jesus Christ over sin. He has set me free from the bondage of sin and no longer have those shackles on anymore. That's the work of Christ. But it's not me becoming a Christian and now all of a sudden I have no temptation or that I never yield to temptation again. Because we do. But as Christians, we're called to keep our vessels clean, aren't we? Just because we know that we, it's like that bumper sticker, you know, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiving, forgiven. I don't like it because it's almost like it gives reason to say, you know what? Hey, we're, hey this is my one little, my one little problem. You know, I'm never going to be perfect. So I'll just dabble in that. You know, I don't like the bumper sticker, though. It's the truth. Christians are not perfect. They're forgiven. 
We're called to keep ourselves as clean vessels. We read in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14, Peter writes, As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lust as in your ignorance, meaning the days before Christ, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. So what's the calling upon a Christian? We're called to be holy. How do we obtain holiness? Well, his holiness has been imparted to me. I can't stand holy in myself. I will stand righteous before him because of Christ and because of Jesus Christ. But he calls you and I the holy ones. He calls us saints. But in a practical sense, he calls us to live holy lives, righteous lives. And we can't do that apart from him. Verse 9 tells us, and we're so thankful that this verse is there, that if we confess, if we will admit our sin is what it's saying, that God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and will cleanse us from all unrighteousness, He'll continue to do that. I'm backtracking a little bit because it's going to be very important when we get into the first six verses of chapter 2. In Psalm 51... Some of you know when I say Psalm 51, you know what Psalm I'm talking about. If you don't know, it would be a good one for you to read. Psalm 51 is David's psalm after David himself had fallen to the sin of sexual immorality. And he went down this whole path of lies and being an accessory to murder and all of it. This is King David, somebody that believed in God. Somebody that is referred to as a man after God's own heart. But we read in Psalm 51, really David's psalm of confession and repentance before the Lord. It's an important one for us to go back to periodically as Christians. Listen to how David uh, writes. He says, "...wash me thoroughly from my iniquity." And cleanse me from my sin. This is his repentive heart before God. Put yourself in this place. Maybe you've never gone to that place where you've just said, God, would you thoroughly cleanse me from my iniquity? Would you cleanse me from my sin? For I acknowledge my trans... There's that admitting. I admit, I acknowledge my transgression. You know what a transgression is? A transgression is when a line is drawn in the sand. And then you choose to cross over that line. You just say, no, I know it's wrong, and I step over that line. That's a transgression. It's different from a sin that we might commit that we didn't even realize it was. But it's a sin that we deliberately cross over. He says, I acknowledge my transgressions. David crossed the line, and he knew it. He says, and in, my, and in my sin is always before me. Have you ever been in that place where it just hits you upside the every single day? I, I know what I'm doing. I've crossed the line. I'm living in it. He says, against you and you only have I sinned. Notice he's not placing the blame on anyone else but himself. And, and done evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. 
He's the judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, David said. In my mother's womb, I was, con- I, mother, in my sin, my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth. Listen to this. Behold, God, you desire truth in the inward parts. You see, we try to, to look good on the outside. God says, I desire the inside. If, if you're more concerned with the inside, then you're in line with me. God says, if you try to clean up the outward, but the inside is like a grave full of sin and full of hidden things, that's not what God wants. David says, you desire in the inward parts of me. And in the hidden part, you will make me to know wisdom. He says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sin, David says, and blot out all of my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. It goes on. You can read it, Psalm 51, a heart of repentance. I believe it's why God said, David, you're a man after my own heart, because you knew how to get right with me. You see, that's what God is always looking for. He knows our failures. Is there one failure that you committed last week that God did not know? One failure committed today that God did not know you were going to commit after you became a child of God. He already knew the day you accepted him that 10 years later you were going to commit this transgression. He knew it beforehand. That's important to know. There's nothing that just creeps up on God. And then all of a sudden we're going, oh God, you know, man, I I probably blew your mind with that one. No, I already saw it way ahead of time. And I still loved you. My blood continues to cleanse you from all and right. All I ask of you is you need to admit it. You need to get your heart right. You need to come to me and I will heal you. Isaiah 118, come now and let us reason together. This is the reasoning this way between you and God, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are like red like crimson, they shall be as wool. That's what God wants to do. He just simply wants to heal. He wants to forgive. He wants to set us back on track with Him. And it's as simple as a true heart of repentance before the Lord. And just like that, God restores. That's our God. It's why we rejoice when we worship our Lord. Look what He's done. Look what He's doing. Look what He's going to do. In verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, Or a person says, I've never sinned. What does it say? We make God a liar. This is probably the ultimate of deception. For somebody to say that they have not sinned. 
It's that ultimate deception because God has already declared for all of sin and come short of the glory of God. He's already said so. What I've learned as a Christian, and maybe you've learned this, I think those of you that have been Christians for a while, you have learned this, is that the closer you draw to the Lord in your walk with Jesus Christ, the more of your sinfulness you see. We might think the opposite. We might think, you know, I've been a Christian a long time. 25 years, 50 years, whatever it might be. And I, I should have, you know, a lot of stuff been cleaned up in my life. And I'm actually a lot cleaner of a person, you know. But I think the closer we get to the Lord, the more I see my shortcomings. I mean, we're talking about perfection versus me. And me and my flesh, I can't obtain that perfection that He is. And the, the, the clearer that vision is of the Lord, that uh, the closer that I can see Him, the more I see my sinfulness. Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, is what we read in God's Word. We come to chapter 2 this morning. That's a long intro. Excuse me for that. But it's important as we go into these next verses. Always keep in mind that when a chapter ends with a chapter break, that that doesn't necessarily end the thought. That it can move on into the next chapter. And I believe that's what we see taking place here as we go into chapter 2. Look how it starts out. My little children. Do you like that terminology? He's speaking to Christians. He's speaking to us that believe. He's calling us little children. Why? Because we're a child of God. We've actually been adopted into the very family of God the day you gave your life to Jesus Christ. This term that John uses here in 1 John, he uses it nine times throughout these five chapters. You see it in our verse here in 2.1. You see it in 2.12 and 2.13 and then 2.18 and then 2.28. In chapter 3, verse 7 and 3.18 and 4.5 and 5.21. My little children. It, it's a term like of endearment toward, you know, like we do with our own children. John, the bishop there in, in Ephesus, and the one that had oversight over, over all these churches, had this love and care for the believers that were there in these churches. These things I write to you, look at your Bibles, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. First, John said in chapter 1, verse 4, these things I write to you that your, what? Your joy may be full. That was one of the purposes of him writing this letter, that your joy would be full. Now in chapter 2, these things I write to you that what? That you may not sin. And so here's another purpose of why John is writing this letter to the believers. 
that we would not sin. But after John's three statements in chapter 1, he then calls them little children and brings them to a conclusion here. The conclusion that he brings them to is that sin is inevitable. It's inevitable in the life of a true Christian. In the life of a believer, you will sin. There will be times that you will fail. And as a matter of fact, if you let that failure and that sin bring about condemnation upon your life, then you are also getting unbiblical. Because there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And so we are not called as children of God to walk in condemnation. You know what condemnation means? To be judged guilty, to be condemned, to be anathema. That's what the word means. And that is not for a believer, according to Romans 8.1. Have you ever, any of you sensed that after you gave your life to Christ, there were areas of your life that you didn't seem to get a handle on? You still struggled with particular sins. There were still areas of your life that you knew God wanted to work in you and change. I think most of us could say, those are still there. I, I still have those, those areas of my life that I'm asking God to work that in me. And I think if I all had you raise your hand to that question, you'd probably all raise your hand. John here applies, he, he, said, he gives us some good news to that, that, what I just said. He gives us some good news to this. He says, we have an advocate. He's implying that you will sin, but we have an advocate with the Father, and who is that? What does it say? It says that it's Jesus Christ the righteous. He's our advocate. And that's good news for us as believers. This word advocate, most of us probably know that it's, it's like a legal term. It's, like a, it's, it's a, like a lawyer, a defense lawyer. And we know that the Scriptures tell us that Satan himself is the accuser of the brethren. He comes and he goes before God day and night accusing. And, but we have a defense lawyer, Jesus Christ, who is our advocate. When Satan or anybody else comes to accuse you, Jesus Christ as your defense lawyer stands there in front of the judge, and when those accusations are made against you, many times those accusations are accurate. You did sin. And what should be the penalty for your sin? There's going to be a penalty that comes along with that sin. You see, a lot of times what Satan says to God about you is true. You crossed the line. You compromised. You sinned. You, you failed God. And what he's saying is true. But you have this 
defense lawyer that stands before the judge. And, and it'd be like him being able to say before the judge, you know, uh, I don't want you to hold this to account because I want this to come upon me. I'll take that place. I'll take that upon me. If I were your best friend, if I were the one that stood before the judge and said, you know what? Hey, I'll stand in, in your place. Judge, would you let me take the penalty? Would you let me go to prison on behalf of so-and-so here that has failed, that has sinned, that has done this? Would you let me do that? I would not have the ability in myself because the judge would say, why would you do that? Number one. But see, I'm not Greg the Righteous. Jesus Christ is Jesus Christ the Righteous. He had every right and the ability to stand before the judge and to declare you righteous before that judge. It's real important for us to know how we're saved, why we're saved, what God has really accomplished in your salvation. Because it really helps us to... Not get all mixed up with all these kinds of questions. You know, I, I brought up last week about this once saved, always saved. How many of you ever asked that question? It's probably the number one question that people want to ask. I don't get tripped up on that, and, and, and this is why I don't. Because number one, I don't see that found in Scripture. I don't find any terminology that talks about once saved, always saved. But I also don't find any Scriptures that say that God is going to lose those that are His. So where do I go with all of this? Well, I think by the time we get to the end of First John, I think that question is going to be answered. And so I'm going to leave you hanging with that as we move along through it. But Jesus Christ is our advocate, and He's our advocate with the Father, who is the ultimate judge of every man and woman's soul. And it's Jesus Christ, the righteous. John goes on in verse 2, and he says, And He Himself... Speaking of Jesus Christ, He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Did Jesus Christ's blood pay the penalty just for some people in this world? What I read is, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. To me, it encompasses every soul. His shed blood paid the price for all. But not all receive that atoning sacrifice. Not all of them take it to account. Not all of them believe in that. And so in not believing and not taking that on, then we miss out on the forgiveness that has been offered to us. He Himself is, John says, the propitiation That word propitiation actually means that He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. What Jesus Christ accomplished on that cross for your salvation could be accomplished by no one else. Even if he was the best man in the world that just wanted to die up there for you, it wouldn't work. Because anybody's blood that is tainted by sin is not the perfect sacrifice. 
Jesus was able to atone and be that propitiation for our sin because he was sinless. He was without sin. This word propitiation also can be defined as a covering. Remember the Ark of the Covenant that sat behind the veil in the holies of holies there in the temple? And on the top of that, what was it? It was the mercy seat as those angels that faced each other. And that priest would go behind that veil. It was a covering that went over the Ark of the Covenant. And these priests would have to go in there with that blood one time a year on the Day of Atonement. And he would have to sprinkle on the top of the Ark of the Covenant that covering, that blood. And it would only be good for one year. And every year he'd have to do it again and again for the sins of the people until Jesus Christ gave it up on that cross. When he gave it up and he said, it is finished, and that veil was ripped from top to bottom, making access between man to God now through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. He is the propitiation. He is the atoning sacrifice, the covering for our sin. It's important for us to know that, to live in that, to know that as a believer, because you will sin. You will at times find yourself falling short of the perfection that God requires. We stand before God someday in Jesus Christ's perfection, not in my own. He didn't ask you to get saved and now tell you to perform. If you live in a performance kind of a mindset as a Christian, I need now that I'm saved and He did all this wonderful work on the cross for me, now it's my job to perform. Then you've got it wrong. We need to be reliant upon Him. I don't perform. before. As a matter of fact, there's not enough good in me and enough in me to perform what God would require. I have to stand in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He is my propitiation. It was actually His death on the cross that averted God's wrath from you. You see, you stood before that judge, really, without you even knowing it, condemned. Condemned before God. And when you accepted Jesus Christ, that wrath that was upon you, according to John 3.36, you were standing under the wrath of God. It was averted from you through Jesus Christ. And not just for yours only, but for the sins of the whole world. That's the love of God. Towards a world that has rejected Him even. That doesn't want to to even believe in that. It's available to you if you will only believe. The test of obedience, as I titled this morning's message in verse 3. Now by this, we know... I want you to underline that. I might have brought that up last week about this word no. By, now by this, we know, that word there is an important word, that we know Him. By this, we know that we know Him. He says it again. If we keep His commandments. This word no that's found 17 times in this letter uh, is the word gnosko. 
And the word gnosko could also be translated into our English Bibles, perceive. So let's put it this way. Now, by this we perceive. By this we know. By this we come to an understanding is what the word gnosko means. Gnosko is a word, the word know is a word that means that we are learning. We are coming to a knowledge of something. And there's many things in your Christian walk that you know that you're coming to a greater and greater knowledge of the things of God in this particular area. By this we know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. So what is it that brings about the assurance to you as a believer? What is it that brings about the real earmarks of what a believer is? Well, it's somebody that is calling themselves a Christian... And they are keeping God's commandments. You know, you, you might ask the question, well, I, I didn't think that keeping the commandments would save you. Or how is it that the commandments are what give you assurance? You see, the commandments that we read in God's Word, they stand for today, even the Ten Commandments. But the commandments that we're talking about here are not just the Ten Commandments, but the entire counsel of God's Word. Verse 3 says, Now by this we know. You could underline that word again, gnosko. That we know Him if we keep His commandments. But oh, excuse me. But verse 4 says, He who says that I know Him, there's those words again. The person that says that he knows Him and does not keep his commandment, commandments, plural, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So how could I paraphrase that? The person that says they're a Christian, uh, but does not keep God's commandments, he simply puts it, it's pretty straightforward, he's a liar, and the truth is not in him. Do you think we're talking about somebody that could be a believer then? If you don't keep God's commandments... The truth is not in you. We have to be careful when we do self-examination. We have to examine ourselves in light of the Word of God. Not based upon your feeling of whether or not you feel saved today and tomorrow you don't. We have to do self-examination based upon what God's Word says. The Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 13.5, and it tells us that it's okay to examine yourself. He says, examine yourself as to whether you are in the faith. He goes on to say, test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you, asking a question, unless indeed you are disqualified? So is it a wrong thing for a Christian to examine himself, to test himself? In light of that question, what is a Christian? I think it is a good thing. As a matter of fact, it's worthy of testing yourself because I want to make sure that when I stand before the Lord someday that I've done what God has required. That I'm getting to heaven based upon what he... Not because I just say, well, yeah, I think I'll go. Why? Well, yeah, I've always been a pretty good prayer. I've always, you know, I've always tried to do the right thing, you know. That doesn't add up with God. 
that nullifies the cross. That says, God, I didn't need you to send your son to die on that cross for me because, you know, I, I, could, I could work it out. I could do it myself. I'm not that bad of a person. That's not God's way. Verse 4, he who says, I know him, gnosko. The person that says, I'm coming to know him in a greater and a greater way and does not keep his commandments as a liar and the truth is not in him. Remember that our key verse I shared in the last week. Anybody know what, remember what that is? Key, one of the key verses to 1 John. Chapter 5, verse 13. It would be a good one for you to memorize. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe on the name of the Son of God. A key verse. That I might know that I have eternal life. There's another word that's important for us to know is there's really two words for know in 1 John. It's the word gnosko and the other word is oida. Oida is the word, uh, is the Greek word translated into our English word know, but it has a different meaning. The, di- the difference between the two of them is that gnosko is an ongoing learning and knowing God more and more. Oida is when divine knowledge has been imparted to you. In other words, you've come to a place now to fully understand what Jesus Christ has done for you or this particular truth. You've come to fully understand this. Oida. What do you think the word is in 1 John 5.13? When he says that, that you may know that you have eternal life. How important is it for a Christian to know where he's going to go when he dies? Do you want to have full assurance or just part assurance? Do you want to be able to say, well, I hope I would go to heaven. I hope God would accept me. That I don't like. I think as a Christian, we should know. And what's that knowing based upon? It's based upon God through His Word, through His church, revealing to you by His Holy Spirit what He has done for you, grounding you in what you believe, and you know that you know that you know. If I were to die today, I'm going to be ushered into the very presence of God, not based upon who I am and what I've done for Him, but all of what He has done for me. That's what John is going to conclude when he gets to chapter 5, verse 13. That you may know that you have eternal life. Verse 5 tells us what these commandments are. It's not the Ten Commandments, as I already said. Not just the Ten Commandments, though that's part of God's Word. But it's, and this is the context, but whoever keeps his what? His Word. He's clarifying, I believe. But whoever keeps his Word, in verse 5, truly the love of God is perfected in him. The love of God being perfected in you is an ongoing process. Let me ask you, 
before you knew Jesus Christ, the Bible says that you, by your very nature, did not love God. That might strike you as odd because you might say, well, hey, I grew up always loving God. And you might have said that with your lips. But by your very nature, you do not love God. We love Him because why? Because He first loved us. That's why we have uh, come to that place where we say, I love God. But let me say this. The day you gave your life to Christ and you said, how, uh, I told God how in love you were with Him for saving you from your sin. Has that love relationship in your personal life grown? Is the love relationship this way between you and God? Could you actually say that you're more in love with God today than you've ever been? Or could you say, oh man, I used to, man, I was over the top about God in my walk with Him, my relationship. I couldn't get enough of Him. I was, and, and now, it's not the same. I'm not where I used to be. You, you know, that's why we're exhorted in Scripture to return to your first love. Remember back to that day when you were fully in love with Him, fully vested in this relationship, and you've moved away from it. Return to your first love, John wrote in the book of Revelation. That love relationship that we have with God will grow. You know how it'll grow? Through your obedience to God's Word. You say, well, why would that be? Obedience, creating this love relationship? Well, those of you that are parents, you love it when your children are obedient, don't you? I mean, that doesn't mean you love your children more or less when they disobey. But that love relationship, that openness, that, that koinonia, that what goes on between you and your child when they're obedient, they just only want to please mom and dad. We're going, this is wonderful. I love it. But isn't that what we would want to have with our Heavenly Father, with Jesus Christ? I want to have this love relationship that is growing with Him. For those of you that are married, are you more in love with your wife today than you were 20 years ago? Or 50 years ago. You should be able to say that. That would be the proper thing to say. But it also should be out of your heart. Right? That would be the proper thing to say. Because we're supposed to fall more in love. And I believe that that happens at this level between you and God. And it happens through your obedience to Him. You know why? Because when I'm sitting with a heart before the Lord that is just desiring to be obedient to all that God shows me in His Word... You know what's stirring inside? Man, I can worship you freely. I'm not running from you, God. I'm not trying to hide under the pew. I'm not trying to do this. You know, I feel like I'm, you know, none of that's going on. I'm just simply saying I'm a sinner saved by the grace of God. And look what you've done. Look what you're doing in me. And God, I know my short failures. And God, would you work in me and change me? That's an openness and an open relationship between you and God that he desires. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. And by this, we know that word there is gnosko. By this, we know gnosko that we are in him. I'm learning. I'm growing in this understanding of God's love for me and my love for him. It's an ongoing process. It's an ongoing thing. I'll never exhaust it. 
As a matter of fact, 1 John 3.16 gives us a little bit of an insight into this because it says, Hereby perceive we the love of God that He laid down His life for us. You know what the word perceive means? This is how I come to understand how much God loves me. That He laid down His life for me when He stretched out His arms on that cross. And I ought also to lay down my life for one another. Do you see the love relationship this way? And then the love relationship this way? One that is growing? And if I'm going to wrap my head around how much God loves me, the only way that I can really grasp it is to look back to the cross, look at the cross, and it gives me just a little greater understanding of how great that love is. Other than that, it's a word on a page. But His love was demonstrated in action on the cross towards us. He laid down His life for us. And we ought also to lay down our life for one another. We'll close in verse 6. He starts it with, again, He who says. The person that calls himself a Christian. He who says He abides in Him in Him, in God, ought Himself also to walk as Jesus walked. So, what is my measuring stick? How do I determine you know, how I should be walking? What's my role model? Well, you know, who do I, you know, do I look at you know, one of you and I say, well, if, I could, if I could find somebody in this church that's not doing as good as me? Just give me one. If I could find one that's not doing as well, I'm going to come out shining. And it doesn't matter how bad. I mean, I could find somebody that is not doing as good as me, and I could make myself look pretty good. And many Christians do that. They, they attempt to do that because, you know, you set yourself up next to Jesus Christ the righteous, and that's a fearful thing. I mean, now I'm comparing my walk to him and I'm going, whoa, I'm so far away. But when I compare to another person, I go, man, I'm doing good. Man, I've never been doing better in my walk. Paul warned against this in 2 Corinthians 10, 12. He says, for we dare not class ourselves nor compare ourselves with those who commend themselves But they, speaking of they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are what? Do you know the verse? They're not wise. In other words, it's not good for you to find a person that you could compare yourself to to see how well you're doing in your walk with Christ. You always want to make Jesus Christ be the one that you want to walk like. Because then, when you do that, there's always room for growth. It'll never stop. We hope you have enjoyed today's study. For more information on teachings, events, worship times, and location, please visit our website, ccfwinstonsalem.com. From Pastor Greg and all of us at Calvary Chapel Fellowship, thank you for listening and being part of our study through God's Word. Thank you.